On the 8th of May 2010, two unsuspecting colleagues set off on a journey that they never thought would last very long. And now, nearly four years later, as we face the 194th episode of the Crude Street Podcast, Jonathan Strand and Gary K. Wolfe head up those stairs once more to the Gershwin Room for the Crude Street Podcast! And a special note to all our listeners... Jonathan didn't tell me he was going to do that, like a 1940s radio show with the shadow or some damn thing. Um, but I liked it. Thank excellent. you very much. I just made it up right there on the spot live. That was excellent. There you go. There's nothing like improvisational. I started to say radio because that introduction did. I've been listening to old radio programs. You? you can download. You can download X minus one. I was listening last night to Mars is Heaven by Ray Bradbury. Um, which was, you know, the, the horror story that was sort of plopped into the Martian Chronicles as the third story, even though it didn't belong there, really. Um, and sometimes those things distill the stories into something very, very simple-minded. There's a way in which radio dumbed down stories even more than movies do. And there's something irresistible about that. So I was having a fantasy. I had my iPad on playing this radio, and I turned out the light, and I was in bed, and I was just... I was pretending like I was like 12 years old in 1955 listening to this radio broadcast for the first time <laughs> and thought, boy, I've gotten cynical since then. <laughs> <laughs> that is sadly one of, one of the side effects of living, Gary. We become, if not more cynical, at least more knowledgeable. And that colors I, how we, we uh, you know, process these things. But still, also... But still. What would, the, what, the, what would that boy in sort of 1955 have made of the fact that you were lying in bed with an iPad, this strange Star Trekian science fictional device that we all own, or so many of us own these days? You know, it's, it, the world's moved on. That's very, very, very true. Although the odd thing is, from a sensorium perspective, that is what you're actually listening to, you're lying in the dark and a voice is coming to you out of a machine from that perspective, an iPad is no different from an old Crosby radio turned on in the middle of the night. That's absolutely true. I guess, the, I mean, the other part, hopefully, is sort of back in 1955, you had fewer aches and pains and crinkly bits. Well, that's true, too. Let's, <laughs> we don't need to get into that too much. No, we won't. But, you know, the world has certainly moved along. I mean, I was going to say, see, the world's moved along just since we started doing the podcast. And I guess part of the reason that I opened like that is because podcast anniversaries are becoming more relevant, I think, as we go along. They are. Well, we did. Well, I'll tell you, for an obvious reason in a moment. I mean, apart from the fact that you and I started off in that first podcast talking about the trend for the new at the time, you know, the new Mm -hmm. weird, the new space opera, the new sword sorcery, all that kind of stuff. Um, The reason that I I guess I mentioned it like that is come... um, Next month, uh, August, you and I will be in London doing something we have never done before. A live version of the Good Street Podcast. That is right. Uh, we will be appearing live, and details are beginning to le- you know leak out for Cood Street 200. Uh, we, we have special guests. We've announced now who the special guests will be, the one, or at least some of them, if not all of mm-hmm. them, because you know we have Robert Silverberg. Kim Stanley Robinson and Joe Walton joining us. 
which is fantastic. And for those of you who are interested in attending the Cood Street podcast and seeing us do it live in front of a studio audience and being able to personally assess our level of incompetence at what we're doing, mm. it'll be at three o'clock on the Saturday of the convention, which must be, be the 14th or 15th or something, or 18th or 19th, something like that. Something like that. Uh, let's call it the 16th. So there you go. At 3 o'clock on the 16th of August, if you're in London, if you're at the Excel Center, if you're a member of LUNCON 3, come and see us record Cood Street 200. And if you're not in London, don't. Because we're not going to be on simultaneous screens worldwide. <laughs> Cood Street aid! Cood Street, one Mate, night only. You reckon we can get Bob Geldof on this sucker? Oh, that'd be great. Jonathan Moss? Um... Or something. <laughs> you, want to follow, you want to follow through with that thought? <laughs> Look, in jest, but, but I'm sure we will have fun. Yeah, and possibly, you know, special guest Sophie Strahan of this of this parish might show up as well. That would be excellent. And we will talk about the sort of things that we're going to talk about if we ever get around to organizing the convention, the, 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 the podcast. But nonetheless, we're here. We've done this 193 times before, which is a little bit weird to think about. And during that, we've talked about, to summarize, if I could for you, awards, 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 reviews, a friend, awards, 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 a friend, reviews, an interesting book, awards, 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 the difference between genre and the edges of genre, is it science fiction, is it not fantasy, is it science fiction, is it not fantasy, science fiction, is it not fantasy, awards. So that was the entire 193 episodes of the Coon Street Podcast done, pretty much in the style of the complete works of William Shakespeare, abbreviated. Uh, and I, I'm, I'm glad you did that. I'm, I'm very impressed. We also have occasionally, though, we have occasionally talked about... Um, oh, Tinder. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, I, wanted to, I wanted to mention, um, we talked earlier, we didn't talk as much as we might have um, earlier this spring when Lucius Shepard passed away at a much too premature age. I'm thinking about that partly because his posthumous novel... The Dragon Griot novel, Beautiful Blood, is coming out very soon, mm-hmm. and Excellent. it's absolutely lovely. But this past week, we also saw, um, through a rather indirect means, but finally confirmed by his agent and his daughter, the death of Daniel Keyes, the author of Flowers for Algernon, who was a good friend of mine for a number of years, and who I think had one of the more unusual careers in science fiction. And there wasn't a lot of talk about it, it seems to me, in the blogosphere or on Twitter. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm somewhat surprised. I don't know if it's because he's an older writer. I don't know if it's because he's pr- predominantly identified with one principal uh, achievement in, in Flowers for Algernon itself. I think everybody who thinks about Daniel Keyes thinks about Flowers for Algernon. Uh, I'm not sure if they think about much else of his work, particularly. So that might be... But it is curious. But but Flowers for Algernon is one of the, I'm going to say, a handful of science fiction stories that by now almost everybody has read. I talked to my granddaughter about it, and I have tried to impress my granddaughter, who is 14. Mm -hmm. Uh, I've tried to impress her with Neil Gaiman. I've tried to impress her with Peter Straub. I said, okay, once I met Stephen King, and that was not a big deal. He's not a friend. but and and, 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 okay, Ellie Wiesel impressed her. Next to Ellie Wiesel, the only person that's impressed her 
was Danielle Keith because she read Flowers for Algernon in eighth grade. Yeah. It's, in a, it's one of those novels, originally a short story, uh, and the short story is still probably more effective than the novel, but one of those things that began um, its life in the magazine of fantasy and science fiction became a science fiction novel, uh, and now it's been repurposed as a young adult novel. Um, and it seems to have the same emotional effect on people that it always did. But the reaction I got from her and the reaction I've gotten from students over the years is that I didn't know that was science fiction. Yeah, I, I, I totally understand it because of the way it focuses on what it's doing and handles character and the implications of the events. Mm -hmm. I wonder also, I mean, maybe he wasn't that active personally in, in the field. I don't know. It, it's very curious, but s sometimes there's an, an, amount, an immense or an intense public response to mm -hmm. someone sadly passing, and sometimes there's not. I mean, uh, I w had expected there to be, to be more reaction, honestly. It, it doesn't in any way diminish the importance of his career or the value of the work that he did, uh, but it is a curiosity. I mean, there's far <laughs> more, I mean, there's far more response for when um, uh, Lucia Shepard died and obviously, in some ways, when Jay Lake died, you know, both being younger, I mean, Shepard yeah. being, I mean, Keyes was in his mid-80s, um, Lucius was 71, I think, and, of course, Jay Lake hadn't even turned 50, so, you know. Right, exactly. So, the, 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 the element of tragedy is largely missing from the event, but the fact that he has such an enormously popular story, I think you're also correct in that... He had attended very few science fiction conventions, hadn't been active in the field. After Flowers for Algernon, he wrote uh, non-fiction psychological thrillers like The Minds of Billy Milligan, wrote a couple of mystery novels. Uh, he'd written a few other science fiction stories, but his, his collected stories, which oddly enough have been published only in Japan, mm -hmm. um, consist of maybe two or three stories before Flowers for Algernon. And two or three stories after that that were science fiction and then some kind of general psychological stories. But I met him at the International Conference in the Fantastic and the Arts. Yep. Under peculiar and delightful circumstances, he was having a hard time getting registered at the conference because uh, because no, the person at the desk didn't know the name, uh, which, mm -hmm. which was odd because most people know the name. So we helped him out with that, and that happened to be the year that uh, my wife and I had been married the previous um, New Year's Eve, actually. But our mutual friend, Charles Brown, said you have to do a ceremony at the convention for all our convention friends. Uh, and, and so we had a, a, a wedding ceremony, which was real. Charles officiating and um, Brian Aldous giving away the bride. And um, I'm trying to remember who else. Joe, Rusty Hevelin, now also sadly deceased, was the ring bearer. Um, and we had John and Judith Clute were there and... Greg Bear was our videographer. It was a, it was a kind of all-star, wonderful. Joel Haldeman was singing songs. And so, and Daniel Keyes, being grateful for having helped him register, yeah. said, I want to be part of your wedding. I heard about this wedding. And we said, the only thing left is Flower Girl. <laughs> and he said, okay, that's it. That's me. Everybody associates me with flowers anyway. Now, the thing that the few people who met him during the few years he was at ICFA was the last time he had any connection with the other community of science fiction writers and fans and academics. He was not the sort of mournful, sensitive soul you expect. He was a Borscht Belt comedian. Yeah. 
He was a short Jewish guy from New York with bright vests and a rapid-fire patter and was very funny and was very enthusiastic. And he got himself a little uh, girl's basket of, you know, those little woven baskets painted pink or something, Mm -hmm. filled it up with flower petals, and actually was, as he put it, the flower being. (laughs) Uh, And then he signed a copy. I was looking, trying to impress my granddaughter again, looking at my copy of Flowers for Algernon, which he signed saying, thank you for letting me be your flower being. (laughs) And I thought, okay, that's a neat guy. Um, And he, I know he worked on science fiction um, stories later in his career. He read one at ICFA once, which I don't know if it ever got published or not. But by and large, he'd moved beyond the field. And when, yeah. in, when the Science Fiction Writers of America gave him the Author Emeritus Award, yeah. which, as I think I may have mentioned before on the podcast, is probably the worst idea for an award ever. <laughs> well, well, yes, it's, well, it's up, up there with the Cordwainer Smith Award, isn't it, for sort of de- you know, overlooked. Well, no, the, the Cordwainer Smith Award is okay because you're dead. <laughs> well, yes, yes. The, the, the Arthur Emeritus Award is is there because we might as well be dead. <laughs> you, 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 you might as well be dead, exactly. <laughs> you know, this is this is an award set up. I mean, SFWA can. I don't know if they're still doing it. I think there were a couple of years yeah, ago. Yeah, they are. SFWA is basically giving an award to people saying, "Hey, we're not going to give you a Grand Master Award, but we know you're still alive." <sighs> it's a hard, hard road to hoe this game. <laughs> And I've, I've talked to a couple of people who got it. One of them was Robert Checkley, and the other one was Dan Keyes. And Dan Keyes very politely pointed out in his acceptance address, I am not an author emeritus. I haven't written science fiction in 35 years, but I've been publishing books regularly during that time. Does that yeah. mean if you no longer write genre science fiction, you're dead to me? Does that, is this the essence <laughs> oh, son of mine? <laughs> yes, I think that's exactly what it means, Gary. That's what I'm afraid of. <laughs> oh, but still, sad, sad news to hear of his passing, and a, a, a great reason to go back and read the story or read the novel, or and hopefully one day some of the stuff that, that only came out in Japan will come out in in the you know in English. He was enormously popular in Japan, and I I'm, I'm not sure why. Um, but Flowers for Algernon is one of those stories which has just immortalized itself already. And that's uh, the, the one thing that I enjoyed doing since I was the first person to meet him mm-hmm. at ICF. And since he did not look like somebody you would expect to have written Flowers for Algernon, and I know that involves stereotyping mm-hmm. and so forth, but you didn't, didn't expect this little rapid fire uh, comedian. So I got to introduce him to people. Now, you've had this experience too, and it's fun, and it's a little. Okay, may sound a little elitist, but isn't it fun when you know somebody famous and you get to introduce them to other people who don't know who he is or she is? <laughs> yes, say, it is. Oh, or even if they're not necessarily famous, but for some reason you know them and the other person is interested in meeting them. You know, I yeah. remember uh, there's a f- friend of mine who's an artist who is desperately eager to meet meet Irene Gallo, the uh, uh, art editor at Tor. Yeah. And was kind of like, I could never just go up and introduce myself. And you're going, no, come on, we'll go up, we'll say hi, we'll have a drink, it'll be cool. So, yeah, you know, that is that is kind of fun, yes. And it is. It's, it's, it's not as though you're making yourself an important person. It's just that you're, you're, you're bringing people together, one of whom admired another. I introduced Brian Aldous to Jane Yolen. You wouldn't think there'd be any connection there at all. But Jane, like a lot of us, grew up as a devoted Brian Aldous reader. And she was 
and, and she's not that much. I guess she is a bit younger than he is, but nevertheless, what happened at this ICFA was I was able to introduce Daniel Keyes to everybody. Nobody had met him. He had not been at a science fiction convention in decades. And one writer um, who was there, who was, is, was and is a distinguished writer, and I shouldn't use his name because I don't have permission, fell down. He, 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 I, I said, this is Daniel Keyes. And he fell backwards into his chair, literally losing the use of his legs. And... <laughs> And looked up at Daniel, this is this was a very tall writer, which is kind of a clue, I suppose, and said, that is the perfect story arc. <laughs> and in a way, he had a point. Yeah. Um, and the other thing which I thought was interesting about Daniel Keyes as a writer, and we've talked about this once or twice before, uh, not in depth, are, are people who write one or two stories and base their reputation on it. And that's in some cases, a cause for resentment. You, uh, I had heard that late in life, uh, I never met him, but uh, Terry Bisson knew him, that Walter and Miller resented the fact that all anybody wanted to talk about was a canticle for Leibowitz. He said, I've written other things, you know, um, and I've, there are other writers along those lines who have always, have never succeeded as well as they did with one story or one novel. And the few times I talked to him, several times I talked to him over a period of years, Dan Keyes was perfectly happy with having written Flowers for Algernon. He even wrote a book about about the writing of the book. Yep. And he knew that his later stuff was in a different field. He knew that his novels and nonfiction books about multiple personality disorder, disorder and psychological problems um, were reaching a different audience. But he was never resentful when somebody would come up to him and say, Flowers for Algernon is my favorite story. He was just delighted to hear that. Yeah. And I always kind of admired that attitude. Well, yes, and some people are very happy when there's you know, one thing. Because also, I mean, for some people, that one thing is, I don't know, changes their life in lots of ways, you know. It's financially successful as well as being critically successful. It's a, mm. you know, a foundation point for a career. And anybody, well, whilst you may prefer, you know, wish you had other things, I mean, really, I, I can kind of empathize a little bit with Walter M. Miller, but I also kind of go, hey, you had Canticle for Leibowitz. There's an awful lot of people who've got nothing like that. That's absolutely true. And I think of the number of writers who have written good stories, and I, a number of younger writers I know have written two or three really good stories but they haven't become iconic stories, and they haven't established a reputation in, in that way. I'm not sure that even with your year's best and riches and gardeners and with the locusts and nebula and Hugo Woods, I'm not sure that a single story can attain that kind of classic status anymore. Well, you know, that's moving into this whole peak short fiction kind of a thing, isn't it? I mean, yeah. Uh, how hard, how easy is it to make a an enormous impact with a single story when there are so many stories, so, so many diverse ways of reading, you know, and this is actually, uh, you know, without sort of getting repetitive about things we've looked at before, it's a characteristic of the modern culture where everything is diversified and changed. It's, you know, you don't sell 150 million records anymore. You sell, you know, a small number of downloads. You don't sell a billion copies of the one book typically and there'll be a rarities but they're much less common than they used to be in some ways That's that they're true. central culturally shared things and so for a writer to come along and write one story particularly one short story that's going to knock the, the socks off everybody very difficult i mean go back to say something like singing my sister down by margot lanigan 
which sucks really off lots of people, right? Yeah. Or um, Ken Lewis' Paper Menagerie, or um, Karen Fowler's Pelican Bar, or you know, there's a handful of them. But even they, I mean, the the, the absolutely. Uh, in the last say ten years, I mean, uh, Stories of Your Life was is it ten years old yet? I don't think it. Well, it is. Yeah. yeah. Um. But, but the other thing, of course, is I mean, Flowers for Algernon. I mean, came out when was it? Nineteen fifty something. Fifty nine, I believe. In, yeah, fifty nine. Okay, so it's it's also got fifty five years of momentum. Mm-hmm. And that you know, sort of that that does color things as well. If, you know, after after the other things have fallen away over fifty five years, some things will stand out, and it remains as one of the things that stands out. So another reason why he should have been very proud of it, as he obviously was. So, one of the things I noticed about it, and I was looking at this, I was looking some stuff up because uh, because of the sad news in the classic Robert Silverberg anthology, the Science Fiction Hall of Fame. Yeah which was, until a few years ago, probably the most commonly used anthology in, in courses about science fiction. The polling, the SFWA polling for the contents of that anthology put Flowers for Algernon number three, yep. which is which is more impressive when you look at every other story in the anthology, was you were looking at Heinlein, Asimov, Van Vogt, Simak, Sturgeon. Every other story was by somebody who had a long, substantial, impressive career. Yeah. And here's one story by somebody who came out of nowhere. So I think part of the problem with Dan's uh, impact on the field was that he he appeared to a lot of people to be, um, well, not quite an interloper, because he published the story in, in fantasy and science fiction, but somebody who wasn't really of the community. And yet he edited Marvel Tales, he edited comic books under Stan Lee, he was the junior member of the Hydra Club with Judith Merrill and Damon Knight and that group in New York yep. in the 1950s. Uh, so he, he did come up through the ranks, but you know he, like a, a handful of other writers um, during the 1950s, Michael Shara is another one. Started out as a, as a magazine science fiction writer, published a bunch of really good stories, yep. wrote a novel called The Killer Angels, got a Pulitzer Prize, and he had a great career, but it was no longer as a science fiction writer. Yeah. And I think to some extent, Keyes moved out of the science fiction field uh, in, in a way similar to the way that Shara did. And as a result, uh, he didn't know anybody in the field. Yeah. His mentors were William Ten and his brother Morton Class. Yeah. The class and Morton Class. And, but he knew a lot of people. He had great stories to tell. Anyway, that's enough of an obituary for an old friend. Yes. I would also mention that uh, Australian writer and academic... Philippa Madden passed away this week as well. Uh, mm. She was very well known as an academic here in Western Australia, where she lectured at the University of Western Australia. She was a attendee at uh, Ursula Le Guin's Writers' Workshop in 1975, wrote uh, a couple of Dittmar winning short stories, including Things Fall Apart, and will be sadly, sadly missed. And her name also had, 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 had reached these shores, I should say. Yeah. I don't know what I've seen by her, but the name certainly... Yeah. And of course, there was the ins and outs of the Hadia city-state, which I don't know if you remember. That might be it. That might Exactly, that's what it was. Yes. Um, and one of those people who I think a lot of people always felt would... Hmm, how do I put it? Oh, yeah, you're, you're right to say would have, would have achieved more, but I think directed her energies elsewhere. And so even though she wrote this small, small handful of short stories between, what, 1979 and... Um, 
the late 1990s, um, never sort of came out with a major novel or anything else like that, which is which is unfortunate, but happens from time to time. Well, she was an academic, and academia can do that to you. Yes, yes. So, anyway, we should move on past such sad things and into the the, the week at hand. Because we're in, in a lull when we haven't really been bothered to get organized and in, you know, sort of have guests in, which is always good, because I have been feeling disconnected from the process and have read nothing in two weeks apart from a comic book or two, uh, which is disgraceful. I can't afford the luxury because suddenly I'm moving into the part of the year where I need to start reading now. But p- frankly, planning for London has derailed me, mm. I think. Uh, that and a few other things. Yep. Well, you're more organized than I am because you ask our friends on Twitter to suggest questions we might address tonight, and we've got a bunch of them here. We do. A small handful of which I'm not sure. Should we just start at the bottom, puzzle our way through? Because, I mean, some of them don't really hit our area of expertise. That's true. You know? Now, I guess the first one I saw came from Clockwork Will. Hello, Clockwork Will. Who who, uh, asked us, how do author royalties compare between print and EPUB? Or and how can we best support our authors? Now, obviously, this is sort of short of actually sort of, you know, being brave and just mailing them checks out of the blue, which I'm sure all uh-huh. authors would appreciate and would encourage you to do. Um, authors usually get a lot. Lar- okay, they get a larger royalty on EPUB, but quite often it's a larger percentage of a smaller pri- of a lower price. Yes, and nine a book that might be. Twenty-four ninety-five in print is maybe nine ninety-five or less. It, it varies an awful lot, so it's not a simple question to answer. But if you look at a book on Barnes on say at an online retailer in the United States, where the book's retailing for twenty-five dollars or nine ninety-nine on uh, in, in ebook, and the author in hardcover is maybe getting eight percent of the twenty-five dollars if they're lucky. Mm-hmm. And they're going to get maybe 25% of the 9.99, so they're getting $2.50 off the ebook. They're going to get whatever 8% of $2.50, probably round about $2 or so off the print book, barring discounts, which might bring it down, because quite often you don't pay the full list price for your book. It's probably a bit of a wash, Gary. I mean, I think as long as you're buying your author, your favorite author's books that, and the books of the authors you want to support. That's all you can do. Just go to a, a retailer and just buy them. I mean, um, I'm going to guess that if you go to independent bookstores, you will do a little bit more for bookstores because those independents can afford to discount less. But still, it makes, even then, the percentage that goes on, I think, is probably about the same. So I don't think it makes much difference. Yeah, in terms of supporting authors, um, that's that's really an interesting question. I guess I guess one way of answering that is if you have specific authors you want to support, there are things you can do to support them. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are perfectly respectable authors that will put together a Kickstarter project. Yep. Uh, and you will be able to find that. As a matter of fact, Linda Nagata, I believe, has a Kickstarter project going on right now. She's a very good writer, very important writer, and she deserves support. People who've read her fiction might want to support that. Uh, other writers do the same kind of thing. Um, and I don't think it makes a lot of difference whether you... Um, I think you're right, whether you buy an ebook or, or, or a print book, because the amount of money going from that particular sale to the author in, in some ways is less important than the number of sales your purchase yeah. contributes. 
Yes. I guess what, what, what I would say, though, is there are a number of people who listen to the podcast I know who actually understand this situation and can answer it. So yes. if you would like to, dear podcast listeners, email me or Gary, uh, probably at the moment most simply at my email address, which is jonathan.stran at gmail.com. We will pass on the answers next week. If there, if there are conflicting opinions, because we'd like yes. to pass on you know, correct information, wouldn't we, Gary? As correct as we can get. Yeah. And if it's, if it's not correct, then if we stand uncorrected, it is correct. Yeah. Okay. Okay. The next question comes from Graham Slight. Uh, Graham Slight, sorry. A, fr- a friend of ours, not even just a fr- not part of the parish, a friend of ours and a, a previous guest on the Cood Street podcast who asks, what are your predictions for the winners of the Shirley Jackson Awards? And he adds the hashtag interestedclared, which brings to mind the fact that I think he was a judge this year. I believe he was, and I was a judge a couple of years ago, and here's the thing about the Shirley Jackson Awards. They're very interesting awards. It's a very good idea for an award uh, that started, I don't know if it started at ReaderCon or if it simply found a home at ReaderCon, but the idea was to recognize somebody who uh, was had written a kind of classic literary fiction of psychological suspense, what they now call the dark fantastic, um, what some people would call horror. As far as I could tell, Shirley Jackson never thought of herself as a horror writer. Yeah. So to some extent, I think the task of the Shirley Jackson Awards as a group, as, 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 as an institution, has been to differentiate itself uh, from the World Horror yeah. Society. So the, the International Horror Guild Awards. Um, and I don't know if it succeeded in doing that over time. Because the reason I say that is because when I looked at this year's list of novels, I'm afraid I haven't read any of them. Uh, That's and true. Them, there's a Joyce Carol Oates novel on the list and a Robert Jackson Bennett novel on the list. And I've read novels by both of them, mm-hmm. and they're both very good. The other... The other authors, Andrew Piper, Yang Chi Shou, Marisha Pessel, and Michael Rowe, I don't know the authors or the books, and so I'm at a loss. Yeah, I, I confess that reading for science, the science, science fiction and fantasy of the year tends to skew my own reading away from dark fantasy slash horror quite a bit, unfortunately. I do read mm-hmm. some overlap because there is genuine overlap, but I do read away from there. And... The Shirley Jacksons actually don't sit in the center of what I read. I was surprised after we received Graham's question. I went back and I looked at the, you know, the previous ballots for the the, the Shirley, Shirley uh-huh. Jackson Awards, and they, they, if I'm if the information I have is correct, it dates back to 2008. And typically, I've read in the area poorly, so basically, I'm not in a position to make any meaningful predictions. I guess what I'd say is. Like you, I've read Joyce Carol Oates, and she's a very fine writer. I have no feel for the novel category at all. In the novella category, I loved Nina Allen's The Gateway, which I think is a very fine story. And I was I was really impressed with Veronica Shano's Burning Girls. Uh, so I would be delighted to see either of those win. I kind of hope, I mean, allowing that anyone who's read two-sevenths of the ballot really isn't well-informed, you know, I would hope that uh, someone like Nina Allen might win. For Novelette, uh, I certainly have read the Greer Gilman, the Tanith Lee, and the Veronica, Sh- the Veronica Shanos, and the Conrad Williams stories. No, no, you know, mm. now that I think, about it, I think I've read them all. Yes, I have. I've read all the Novelette category. 
Oh. And I, I was actually, I have to say, Veronica Shannon, who mostly write, works for Ellen Datlow, writes for Ellen Datlow, is, is a terrific writer. And Phosphorus was a very, very good story. I also know people who love Drew Gilman's story, though. I have to confess, Gilman's work doesn't resonate well with me, you know, as a reader, though I can see its and appreciate its merits. Um, it's a little bit too clotted for, for my, my taste. Greer is a very smart and very intellectual writer, and her language is hmm. dense and meaningful. And as somebody said to me once, chewy, I don't know if that's a compliment or not. <laughs> well, but yes. I'm glad to see her on the list. Uh, the reason I like to see Greer Gilman, Greer Gilman on the list, and I think that Veronica Shannon is this kind of writer. She's an emerging writer who's very interesting and doing very interesting things that don't quite fit in the, in, into genres, is that those are at least, and I don't know the Tanith Lee or the Megan Abbott or the Conrad Williams stories, although Conrad Williams is a very literary writer, it seems to me. There's a literary quality. There's a particular odd sense of irony in Shirley Jackson's fiction that I see in some of these. Yeah. Um, and at all. I, not, not, not that the Shirley Jackson Awards necessarily need to be for fiction which looks most like yeah. Shirley Jackson, but I think it needs to be something more than uh, straight horror fiction, yeah, and yeah. I think that some of the stories on this ballot, at least, predictions, I don't know. I couldn't make a prediction at all. I would be inclined for no reason whatsoever to think that Veronica Shannon's might win. She might. Um, she may, and she would be a very de deserving winner, though, frankly, I mean, Greer Gilman's a terrific writer, and uh, you know, as is Tanith Lee, so. For short fiction, you know, I mean, I've, I've certainly read uh, most of the stories there, I think, I've read, I've read and enjoyed a number of Maria Devana Headley stories. Paul Park is, a, is just a fantastic writer and has been a really interesting work. Maureen McHugh is one of the best short story writers we have. And the memory book is an interesting story, though I will be honest and say not one of my favorite McHugh stories, which is why it didn't make my best of the year that year. Um, and, of course, Robert Shearman, who has over the last probably four or five years really come out as been one of our most important short story writers. And I'm, one thing actually I'm very excited about this year is his new collection coming out in a couple of months, mm -hmm. which will be great. And he's also got a story in my Fearsome Magics, and I don't normally mention the kind of things I'm editing in, on the podcast like this, but the story that he wrote for me for um, Fearsome, uh, Fearsome Magics is, I think, one of the best stories of the year. Really? And, one of the, and one of the best things that you'll read. I think it's an ex extraordinary story. And he's a hateful man because he's so lovely and so kind. And this story is so dark. And he wrote it. He wrote me a story for the book. And I wasn't really that crazy about it. And he picked up. He said, oh, well, you, you, know, you don't sound that enthusiastic. Like, well, it's all right. And he said, don't worry about it. I'll take it back. And I'll write you another one. And four days later, boom, this thing came through my, or five days later, this thing came through my email box and just floored me. And floored my editor, Jonathan Oliver, as well. So mm. really keep your eye out for, for, for that. And if this is if that tiny flutter of the heart is a, a sh just a shaving on, on the story he did for me, it should win. So okay. Then. Collection, though, is collection, can I say, preempt something we're going to do later this year, Gary K. Wolf. Oh. Yes. And Collection does, because first of all, there's a friend of this podcast, Christopher Barzak, is on for Before and After Lives, a book we've talked about before. Yes. Um, Nathan Ballengrud's North American Lake Monsters is there. And I'd be interested to talk to Nathan. I've never met him, I don't know. Well, I've met him briefly, yeah, I think. And 
I would love to chat with him about what he's doing. But but Kit reads the story until now, which collects uh, most of her best short fiction in a single volume is there. And I believe we're going to attempt to have Kit on the podcast at some point this year and have a chat with her. Talk to Kit. See if we can do this uh, in a couple of, in, in a few weeks, I'll be at ReaderCon. I wrote the introduction to the book, uh, sort of by a way of disclaimer. Uh, but it's, it's a, it's a career long retrospective and a long career retrospective. Yeah. He started publishing in 1958. Yep. This is somebody who's got more than a half century of publishing. And, and again, to go back to the, Shirley Jackson sort of um, idea, her fiction has been odd. I mean, when you were talking about Rob Sherman, for example, or Paul Park or Maureen McHugh, they write things that are a little bit odd. And it's not necessarily that they look like Shirley Jackson, but that they're off-center. They don't fit in any consistent category. And one of the things that was characteristic of Shirley Jackson's fiction, and especially her short fiction, even though it appeared in The New Yorker, and actually later in the magazine of fantasy and science fiction. Well, that alone tells you something. It didn't It didn't really fit anywhere. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so I think that uh, Kit Reed's career-long retrospective is, is very impressive. Um, but Chris Barzak is very impressive. Michael Marshall Smith is a writer who, when I began reading his short fiction, mm. usually in Datlow and Windling's Year's Best Fantasy and Horror, he seemed to be a pretty graphic and persuasive horror writer and he's grown in complexity and depth absolutely absolutely i mean i'll be honest of, of of the five books that are there of the three that i've read read and i'm familiar with i would be delighted to see any of them win but i kind of hope kit reed's book does win i kind of hope does does too for anthology there's a batch of very worthy nominees and a book i confess i've not read so i've read five of the six there was uh, Steve Berman's Queer Alan, Alan Poe anthology, Where the Dark, Thy Dark Eye Glances. Mm-hmm. Ellen Datlow, guest of the pod, on the podcast, friend and prolific and highly respected editors, Queen Victoria's Book of Spells, which was a, a lot of fun, and it was where Phosphorus, what? the Veronica Shannon story, appeared. Uh, Grimscry's Puppets by Joseph Pulver, which I've not read. The End of the Road by Jonathan Oliver, which is a, a wonderful major... Uh, dark fantasy collection from Solaris. Jonathan Oliver is the, is the uh, major editor at Solaris, and uh-huh. has edited a handful of short st- of, of uh, anthologies. This is his second or third. Uh, has already won a major award. Uh, I picked a Benjamin on Scrivenguy story from it. Um, so it's terrific. And Jared Shoren, who's part of Porno Kitch, I think, and has edited a batch mm-hmm. of stuff for this really f- interesting project at Jurassic London, where they go around editing anthologies to go along with major museum exhibits and other events and whatever else. And Book of the Dead accompanied a major uh, museum ex- exhibit. had some really interesting stories in it. And it's a quite a strong anthology and a worthy nominee. I think it's great. I mean, I'm, I'm going to go with, you know, personally, I'd love to see End of the Road win because I think John Oliver is a terrific anthology editor who's not been widely recognized. But were um, anybody, but particularly Alan Dattler, to take it home, I'd be very, very happy to. Uh, the only one of those I know is Ellen Dadlow's, and I've read a chunk of the stories in it. It's one of the books. Well, this is this is probably a compliment to Ellen because I did not review the book, but I read the stories in it anyway because I knew they'd be fun. Yeah, yeah. She she always does good books, and she's got a couple of good new books out right now. I think Fearful Symmetries, which was supposed to be a science fiction horror anthology, she and I were going to co-edit, but turned uh-huh. into the Kickstarter book that she did, and this will tie into a question we're about to answer in a minute. 
Uh, that's just come out and has some some terrific stories in it. And you know, usually anything she does is well worth checking. I think she's got a Lovecraft's Monsters book and a few other yeah, things. So yeah. And with that, we should push along to the next question on the list. Gary the K. Wolf. My list is how important are imprints in the field? Uh, do I assume this is do you support Kickstarter projects? Okay, um, imprints meaning. Publishers' names? Well, I, no, I, well, maybe, but I'm going to guess even more so. Um, the actual, the actual science fiction imprint within the major publishing house. So, like, Tor is is now a science fiction imprint of a major publisher. Um, Voyager is an imprint of HarperCollins. Um, was it uh, Saga is now Simon and Schuster's new science fiction imprint, yeah. replacing some years ago was it Searchlight or something? I think used to be be, be there. Something. Imprint. So, the, so there's a batch of imprints within p- major publishing houses. I think they're really important, Gary, historically, in all sorts of ways. Not Historically, yes, but go ahead and explain why in other okay. ways. The reason I think they're probably quite important, he's just throwing things on the floor, uh, is, is because even if readers are unaware of the publisher, even if they're unaware of the imprint themselves... It, the imprint becomes a focus within a major publishing house for for genre work. It's where editors with passion for, knowledge of, skill in the genre are put together with uh, other people who, are, who, who have a passion for it, who work in and around editors, whether they be art editors, whether they be production people or whatever else, mm-hmm. to get high-quality science fiction, fantasy, and horror out to, out to readers. They are aware of the field. They reach out to all readers. They, or sorry, to writers. They solicit work. Uh, all that sort of thing. I think it's a critical part of how the field works, and has been for quite a number of years. That's what I think. What do you think? I think you're right, and I think that. Um, but one of the one of the key things of what you just said is that an imprint usually means. Um, that a publisher has hired somebody who knows something about science fiction or yes. fantasy, or yeah. which means that the, the, the manuscript, there's going to be some work at soliciting manuscripts, at developing manuscripts, and so forth. Um, and I think that uh, the most recent example, and somebody we hope to talk to uh, in the near future, is Joe Monty at, uh, at Simon & Schuster, uh, who clearly knows the field. Simon & Schuster, I don't know what they were doing before, um, but... There's always a sense that the field is going to get more knowledgeable uh, support from an editor who knows the field. So the more imprints there are, the better. Whether that means anything to the reader is another question. I don't know if uh, science fiction and fantasy readers are going to go out looking for, oh, here's a saga book from Simon & Schuster. I think readers still tend to go by authors' names, by titles, and so forth. Um, That being said, that being said, when I was a kid... I remember having a distinct sense when I was 10 or 12 years old of realizing that Ballantine books were more interesting to me than other books. Yeah. It was my first awareness as a reader that publishers made a difference. Yeah. And Ballantine at that point was publishing Clark, they were publishing Sturgeon, they were publishing Summer Bradbury, uh, and they just it had all those great Richard Powers covers. And I thought, okay, I'm more likely to like a book published by Ballantine than I am to like a book published by what was then the New American Library was called Signet. Yeah. Um, you know, even though Signet had 
um, had Heinlein and other writers. So I think there is a certain degree of brand loyalty. And I think Tor is, Tor and Orbit and Gallants are about the only publishers I can think of that have that kind of brand loyalty among science fiction and fantasy readers these days. Yeah. Well, I mean, oh, there's a batch. I mean, Bain have a very, very strong Bain, Bain, loyalty. Uh, I, I think, in fact, probably are the most pronounced at it, you know, mm. these days. They've been very masterful in how, they, how they've branded and managed their branding. And you see other publishers. I've seen the first slate of book covers from Saga, which is Joe Monty's imprint at Simon Schuster. Mm-hmm. And they look very, very clearly aware of genre and, and not aware of what they're doing. I mean, to me, it's it's tricky to, to judge how, how it impacts on even a moderately well-informed reader just because at some point, how do I put it? I fell down the, a geeky rabbit hole years ago. And I remember start, starting in the mid-1980s, pouring over locust forthcoming books every quarter when they came out and mm-hmm. so you're keeping track then all of a sudden of publishing houses and you're automatically disinterested in those publishing houses that don't publish the kind of stuff you're interested in so i'm probably overly aware of it so it's taking it beyond that kind of thing i think the average reader probably is, has a low level of uh awareness unless there's a very clear branding or marketing to it you know so the yellow books that golan's published the yellow yeah. covers they did for years they were very clearly branded for a broad readership, much the way I guess the classic Penguins were. I right. think uh, Daw, for for many years with the yellow spines on the books, yeah, because they'd do a yellow spine that have a collector's number on it and all this kind of thing. Mm-hmm. That all that also built a real awareness uh, that here was a you know something common, and you would look at a glance across a bookshelf and see those spines and go, well, they they might be of interest to me, where the, these others may not. So, but. More generically than that, no, I don't think. I still don't think most readers are aware of a Harper Voyager book over a, you know, but that doesn't mean that they're not benefiting from the existence of those imprints. That those imprints aren't important to writers and to editors and to all sorts of other people as well. So, I think it's true. I agree. And, and just quickly for the Kickstarter question, I guess I've supported one or two Kickstarter projects, but but not typically much. I don't look out for them. I sometimes get notified yeah. of them. Things seem to be. Uh, worthwhile ideas. I mean, there's there's a there's a certain hazard in Kickstarter in that it's simply a way. Of, it can be a way of funding funding a, a kind of vanity project. Yeah. Um, there, there's a thing that I get. I don't know if you've gotten these, but I, I, I get them not anymore because I'm fading from memory, I guess. But uh, things from biographical dictionaries, something published in Cambridge, UK's the International <laughs> yeah. Biographical Dictionary, the Biographical Dictionary of Who's Who in the Midwest, and they're saying. You know, we want to put you in here. Here's your information and so forth. And all you have to do is buy a copy for, you know. Well, if you're putting 80,000 people in a book and selling one copy to each of them, it doesn't make any difference if the book has any editorial value at all. And Kickstarter can be like that. It can be like, if we get enough people sponsoring this thing and we just give a copy to everybody who sponsored it, we still made money. Yeah. That's a possibility. On the other hand, and that's the reason I mentioned somebody, a respectable and respected writer like Linda Nagata, there are very worthwhile Kickstarter projects out there. Oh, of course there are, yes. I think the only thing to do is to look through them and uh, uh, and, and, and make your own decisions. Well, I mean, absolutely. I mean, two, oh, that's where it, what, what went wrong. Uh, the two things, two that come to mind are, in fact, Ellen Datlow's Fearful Symmetries, which is a very successful Kickstarter campaign, uh-huh. and uh, obviously uh, Light Speeds, Women Destroy Everything in the World, Um 
Kickstarter, which was very, very successful indeed. So, next question. Um, has the blogosphere, this is from, I don't even know. Switkowski, I think it is. Switkowski. Okay. Hi, at Switkowski. Has the blogosphere changed the way books are reviewed? Are reviewers too kind to bad books? Um, Two questions. You start with that because you're, you're, you're the main reviewer amongst us, dear Mr. Wolf. Well, it's, has it, has it changed the way books are reviewed? Probably not. People still read books and say this is something you might want to read or not. Has it changed the number and um, and the proliferation of reviews? Absolutely. I mean, the problem that I have when I look at uh, online reviews is that I don't know whether I'm reading a review by a homicidal maniac who's locked up in maximum security prison in Mississippi or somebody who's a Harvard professor. Yeah. Uh, all I can go on is what the review actually says. And usually two or three lines into a review, I can find out whether the person knows what they're talking about. I think one of the things that people don't sometimes realize is that those of us who do write reviews for a living read other people's reviews. One of the ways of keeping up with the field, and you can't read, we were talking about the Shirley Jackson words, you can't read all the horror fiction that's out there. It's not my purview, it's not what I review, but I want to know what's going on, so I read other reviews. Yeah. And by and large, the problem with the blogosphere is that there are really excellent reviews there. Uh, mm-hmm. And sure. they vary by genre. They ver- so, so my problem has been finding out which sites are reliable. And True. what little I found out suggests is that, okay, some sites are pretty reliable in terms of hard science fiction. Some sites are pretty reliable in terms of horror, but they're not any good at all in terms of hard science fiction. And some sites... Just like any fantasy novel that came out as long as it has dragons in it. <laughs> well, I mean, okay. First of all, part of my response is that it's probably, you know, always been true of reviewing in the sense that you always had to read around and find reviewers and review outlets that you understood so that you could take their opinions in the context of your own reading. You know? Exactly. That kind of thing. So, so you'd always look and say, well, I read uh, Mishiko Kukatani at the New York Times, and I never agree with her, but I understand why I don't agree with her, so her reviews give me some kind of a benchmark. Mm-hmm. Or I read James Bradley in The Australian, and I, my tastes do go down the same path as he's doing. I do think that the blogosphere has changed the way books are reviewed somewhat. I think book reviewing is more personal than it used to be. Mm-hmm. It's more like friends exchanging exchanging recommendations largely because it's created a large broad platform of people who are reviewing casually yeah and so it is an enhancement of hey i really like this book check it out i recommend it to you so there's that change i think think okay to some extent in the last 10 years what used to be confined to discussion boards or listservs is now completely public yeah Uh, what you used to ideas and opinions you used to pass along to your friends, you can now pass along to the world at large. Yes. And, and, and to some extent, that's what that's what confuses matters a little bit. But, I, I but think it's, 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 go ahead. I think it's also added a element of dialogue to the book review experience. Because when you're blogging book, book reviews, there is a comment back and forth exchange and it can feed into Goodreads where that kind of thing happens. So, that, yeah. so it's, it's a little different in that regard as well. Um, I also think that 
it has impacted on the timeliness of book reviews. Uh, book reviews tend to be even earlier now, I think. And it will appear very you know, right up to the last minute more often than they used to do. Uh, I think it has changed the back end of book reviewing quite a lot, Gary. Because, the, because the vast majority of blog book reviewers review for free. Mm-hmm. And so it, I think it has made it more difficult for a book reviewer to make money or get paid as, as a book reviewer. I think that's something that's helped to undermine things like newspaper book columns and all that kind of thing. I also think it's undermined publishers' willingness to send out galleys, which they do less and less. And, and you know, I mean, some do it electronically now, some don't. Some do it via net galley, some don't. Uh, but overall, the, the, there's a, 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 a greater reluctance to send out review copies. So I think that you know, it has impacted. I, yeah, it has not, in one way when you when you talk about venues and newspapers and magazines, both of which I write for. There's there's one difference, and it's it's a difference when I've I've been writing reviews for the Chicago Tribune for the last year or so, and you realize okay this is different. This is different from a kind of genre specific reviewing venue for people who are interested in science fiction. Well, the people who are interested in science fiction are interested in what I write, and Locus will read Locus. Mm-hmm. But then when you talk about uh, the year's best anthology, my, my latest column in the trip, as a matter of fact, my latest column in the Chicago Tribune mentions your Thank you, Gary. Um, your best anthology and uh, Jeff Vandermeer's uh, novel and um, and Gardner's. And then, th- then you realize there's a kind of missionary zeal about this. You have to talk about these books in a way that might make them interesting to people who aren't already interested in them. Yep. And I think that the blogosphere has a hard time reaching outside of its own affinity group its own special interest group. Uh, people who want to read teen urban fantasy, romance, vampire, werewolf novels will go to those websites. Yeah. And there are enough novels, this is the other thing, there are enough novels these days to support a website on any sub-sub-specialty you can think of. Yeah. And people who want to go to those websites will find things on those websites. If you want to promote science fiction, a science fiction or fantasy or horror work outside of that affinity group, then the broader commercial review venues, which is not just newspapers like the Chicago Tribune, it could be something like Salon.com, those venues become important. Yes, I agree. And just quickly, the are reviewers too kind to bad books? Ah, you know, probably in some cases. Hmm. I, I guess you've got to pick up what the intent of the, the reviewer and the review column is when you try start trying to assess that. Some are clearly intended to be analytical, and if the analysis falls short, then that's a failing. Some are supposed to be, gosh, this is awesome, try and read it. And as long as they're honest and at, at, they can do it without being particularly critical, you know, I think it's um, it, it's a vexing question. Some well, one are of the things yeah. you learn after years in reviewing is that uh, even though you start out thinking I am going to save the world from bad books, you can't. You know, they just reviewers cannot intercept a book in midair. Reviewers are not anti-ballistic missiles. Um, and, <laughs> no, and, and no. I, it, it's it's a point at which, and we've talked about this several times before. You know, if a book is that bad, I'm not going to finish it. I'm not going to review it. There was a wonderful bad review. Unfortunately, I don't remember what the target of it was, but it was in um, one of uh, Nisi Shaw's. Uh, columns for the Seattle uh, newspaper, I think, recently. And it was, a, it was a wonderful takedown of a book that was getting a lot of publicity and so forth. It was probably bad science fiction. I think mm-hmm. it was an easy show. 
Um, and I think there's a sense in which that's a useful thing to do if you're assigned to review the book. Yeah. Um, but if you're not assigned, it, you know, if, if you don't have to review a bad book, why would you even read it? True. Uh, similarly, though, if you're mad enough to finish a bad book, you really shouldn't be attempting to score points when you review it badly or, or, or get back at them. I mean, I hate vindictive reviews. You know what I mean? I really do. Oh, no, they're, 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 there's the kind of vendetta review that you uh, used to get, or the kind of just general uh, dismissive review, which Kakatani tends to do in the Tribune, in the, in the, in the New York Times. Um, but by and large, yeah, writing, I mean, if you want to have fun as a reviewer, and I, I confess I did this early in my career, you pick out some bad books, and you just write very, very funny reviews trashing them. And one of the things that Charles Brown told me early on when I was doing that more than once, and it was those are fun reviews to write, was we don't even need to call attention to this book if it's that bad. Why should we run a review of it at all? Yeah. It was a good question. Uh, no, well, I, I, I've had this, that, this exact conversation with people who have raised this question about Locus only writes positive reviews, which is a fairly, yeah. from my mind, poorly thought through, shall we say to be polite, uh, comment and what I can't come away what I come away with is this feeling well this feeling that it is a waste of time to go around reviewing quote unquote bad books I, I get bored I, mean, I, I still get bored all the time and I put down many books part way through I'm not going to continue just so I can write a review and then get, get well continue reading the thing till I'm cranky enough to write a review that shows that I'm cranky and then tell everybody how awful it was. You know what I mean? It's like... I could... I, I, I did this once or twice. I'll give an example. I have not read a James Patterson novel in a long time. He's a very good storyteller. Chapter by chapter, every chapter ends in a cliffhanger. The novels don't hang together. The novels I read were just a mess. But I, I realized early on that everything that I thought made this novel a mess was the same thing that was making it a super bestseller. <laughs> yes. So anyway, and, so what do I know? So anyway, and yeah, look, yeah, reviewers may be too kind, but yeah, so what? You know what you're doing when you're reading. I'm going to skip the next one because we're getting towards the end of our time, and we don't have time to read uh, to give you a meaningful response about the difference in genre uh, publishing. So should we just skip quickly to text T-Rex rules question uh, about favorite novels of the year? You know, what are your favorite novels of the year so far? Favorite novels. Okay. We're going to skip over this too quickly for two T-Rex rules, so we might come back to it. But do you want to just like touch a, a couple on, and then we'll talk about it, do a proper coverage on the subject a bit later on? Okay, so we'll worry, worry about the genre publishing in the U.S., U.K., We'll come Australia, back to that. And we'll also, yeah, yeah, exactly. We'll also come back to it yeah, in more detail about favorite novels, but maybe just a quick touch on for okay. the moment. Okay, books, novels of the year. It doesn't say books. So it says novels. Okay. So let me think about this. Um, and I've got a... I, I actually looked at what I've been reviewing and reading this year. Um, so I'm not sure what goes back to the beginning of the year or not. Um, certainly one of the, um, in, well, okay, one of the books I enjoyed early in the year is, is Gene Wolfe's The Land Across. It's not a major Gene Wolfe novel, but it's a Gene Wolfe novel, and it's very clever, and it's very subtle, and so forth and so on. Um I've got Christopher Priest, The Adjacent, which I thought was wonderful. Last um, year's book, Gary. Last year's book. It's this year in the United States. You're, you're, it's all, you're in the comic book. You know, 
We're, we're here in America. We, we this, read the books when they come in America. This year is in America. It's always last year and everywhere else. But anyway, continue. Which I don't think has come out in America, and I think should have gotten a lot more discussion than it has so far, is Simon Ings's Wolves. Yes, very fine book. That's been a major event this year. Yes, I think it has. I agree. Um, in terms of books published year to date, and I've read very few novels, Gary, as I've said all along, I would oh. entirely endorse your recommendation of Wolves by Simon Ings. I think it's a terrific book. Uh, I've been reading and loving Tiger Man by Nick Harkaway, his new book. I want to see that one. Uh, I thought Nedia Korofor's Lagoon was enormous fun. Just enormous fun and, and would happily recommend it. Um, and there's a few probably non you know, like collections and such that I could that I could name check, but that might be it for this abbreviated recommendation. What I will say, Gary, about an oddity about the year so far, there hasn't been the novel of the year novel yet. Probably not. Uh, there are a lot of novels of the year within certain narrow uh, categories. I mean, if I were to know, okay, if you're going to insist that the if you, but you can perfectly reasonably insist okay. that the is, there's not, yeah. then the alternate history of novel of the year would be Joe Walton's My Real Children. Yes, sure. Beautifully done. It's uh, it's almost a mainstream novel, and yet. The divergent histories of this one character are genuine alternate histories. Yeah. Uh, the uh, in addition to Nydia Corfor's Lagoon, uh, the first novel by Mary Rickard is an important and surprising novel. Not yeah. necessarily what you expect um, from Mary Rickard, but uh, substantial. Daryl Gregory's After Party is my guess his most commercial novel to date. I like all of his novels, but this is one that has a real kind of contemporary, near-future, drug-addled buzz to it, and it has an angel in it. Um, we talked to Joe Abercrombie about Half a King. Which I enjoyed a lot. Sort in the beginning. Um, things I've read since then, a couple of things uh, that I think are worth mentioning, uh, of, is Paul Park's novel, All Those Vanished Engines, which I think is a July book, so it's not quite out. Yep. But Paul Park is a very interesting writer who deals with uh, autobiographical and historical material and science fiction and fantasy and metafictional material all in one novel. And the, the, this is the one that brings all that together. Um, we mentioned, I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, Lucius Shepard's Beautiful Blood, which is a short novel. Yep. Uh, tragically, just makes you more interested in the Dragon Griol than, than you ever were before. Yep. And we should mention probably also, I should mention, because I was late getting to it, the second um, volume in Paul Cornell's yep. sort of para, paranormal police squad in London investigates really bad things, um, which is called The Severed Streets. And he's got, he's, he's got a thing going there. He's got a thing going there which could easily be a BBC miniseries in a few years. But, but he's absorbed enough of the genre... In a number of ways, he's he's absorbed horror, he's absorbed science fiction, uh, he's absorbed Doctor Who, which he of course is written for, uh, in, in a way that when he does this sort of thing, he really is writing very enjoyable contemporary London. Um, he's absorbed Alan Moore, I should say that because I think that shows up in the novel. Mm -hmm. That's a lot of fun as well. And uh, every once in a while, when somebody asks you to 
name the best novels of the year so far, you tend to gloss over the ones that are just a lot of fun. Yeah. And I think Paul's novel was just a lot of fun. Excellent. Well, that's a, a little bit of a r- rough sort of quick coverage of that, but we are beyond our hour, Gary, believe it or We're not. Past- we have we, we have stretched and stretched and stretched and once again pulled almost nothing out of nothing. <laughs> next, well, and um, I'll be off at various conventions in the next couple of months. I'll be going to the Locus Awards in Seattle and ReaderCon in Burlington, Massachusetts. And we do have some guests lined up for those and in-between things. So we, we will do. be back with guests sometime soon. I think we will, and hopefully we'll – well – we may or may not, depending on our degree of focus, come up with a cavalcade of wonders when Cood Street goes Europe. Cood Street does Europe. I don't even want to think about that as a movie title. Oh, we could talk to... Oh. Well, we can talk to her in London. I was going to say, we could talk to Elliot de Bodard in Paris. That, that, would be, that would be very cool. Absolutely. Wouldn't it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And we would, we'll, right. we'll be recording in Normandy. And, you know, we'll record in London. It's all, it's all very, very cosmopolitan. And on that note, Gary, we stagger to the finish line of Crude Street 194. And we're nearly there. So I will talk to you next week. Next and week. anybody who has suggestions for further su- comments, topics of interest, let us know. Feel free to Twitter us. Tweet us. At Crude Street. We're out there. Right. And now until next time, we remain, as always, the Mullers of Crude Street. Good night, John. Good night, Gary.